we always want to insert our own righteousness. We always want to think, well, we've got something to do with our right standing before God. And our doctrines say, no, we don't. It's entirely Christ and our reliance upon him. Welcome to Mid-America Reform Seminary's Roundtable Podcast, a broadcast where the faculty of Mid-America discuss everything from Reformed theology, cultural issues, and all things seminary. This is episode 92, and I'm your host, Jared Luchibor. Thank you for tuning in. Continuing in their review and critique of Federal Vision Theology, Dr. Beach, along with Drs. Alan Strange and Cornelis Venema, open up the doctrinal testimony regarding recent errors. A document written and published by the faculty of Mid-America back in 2007, where they identify carefully, explain clearly, and evaluate pastorally the errors of this teaching. Well, once again, we take up issues surrounding what became known as the federal vision. Uh, I'm not sure the status of that term presently, but I think a lot of people understand who were involved in the controversy that surrounded that uh, knows what it means. Any confessionally reformed institution that was seeking to be true to Scripture and embrace its uh, confessed faith seriously felt compelled to uh, make an evaluation of the federal vision. Mid-America Reformed Seminary felt compelled to do that. So way back in May of 2007, the faculty published a document entitled Doctrinal Testimony Regarding Recent Errors. That was a a document that didn't only deal with federal vision, it also dealt uh, with new perspective on Paul in various ways. And what this document sought to do was to be a testimony uh, to particularly our constituency and any interested parties of where we as a faculty stood regarding the federal vision. And uh, this document was purposefully modeled after the old Chicago statement on biblical inerrancy, which meant that at least a portion of it uh, was uh, articulated in a way of affirmations and denials. The document itself took up matters of the covenant of works, the covenant of grace, covenant and election, some law gospel sorts of issues, uh, questions surrounding merit, uh, the believer's merit relative to salvation, justification, justifying faith, faith alone, apart from works, uh, questions of the nature of the sacraments, the efficacy of the sacraments, questions like that. And then perseverance and assurance as well. And finally, it also treated matters about membership in the church. That's very comprehensive. I would probably add that kind of floating in between uh, in and out of these two main issues was the views of uh, Reverend Norman Shepard, whose views on justification and justifying faith had created a great deal of controversy and needed parsing out and sifting out as well. So that document uh, 
that the seminary put out, doctrinal testimony regarding recent errors, had those errors in focus. So given the comprehensive nature of that document shows you how you start pulling a thread somewhere and the sweater starts to unravel. You start tinkering in one place and it takes a it takes a big sweeping answer to answer a little error, or it looks like an error only in one place. One area where the error, I think, found immediate focus is how they were understanding sacraments. The Reformed always made a distinction between the sign and the thing signified. The sign would be, of course, in the case of baptism, being baptized, the water sprinkled or immersed or however it was performed. There's the outward sign, uh, uh, something very visible, tangible, a washing, uh, a visual thing, but it's pointing to the thing signified. And the thing signified is the saving work of Christ for us on our behalf. It's the reality. It's the thing that the sign's pointing us to. The sign is visible. The thing signified is invisible. How do you see that someone's sins are washed away? <laughs> Literally. Well, you can't see the atoning work of Christ cleansing you, but you can look at baptism and see a visible sign of that. But here's the thing. The Reformed were always careful not to separate the sign and the thing signified, but neither to simply identify them. And federal vision tended, tended in the direction of identifying them. So if you're baptized, the sign, then you have absolutely the thing signified. Now, confessionally, the Reformed were concerned that we not treat the sacraments, in the words of the Belgic Confession, as empty and hollow signs to fool and deceive us. For the truth of the signs of the sacraments the truth is Jesus Christ, without whom uh, the signs would, of baptism and the Lord's Supper would be nothing at all. So again, federal vision is rightly reacting to the sort of Reformed Presbyterian believers, churches, that did make the sacraments empty and hollow signs. They're nothing. Um, but they overreact, and now they collapse the distinction between the sign and the thing signified. And now you end up with this new conundrum. Well, if we're all saved head for head, baptized, every baptized, period, uh, you have it all. It's done. It's accomplished. Well, what are the manifest signs of that? Well, it becomes your faithfulness, your obedience, your clinging to Christ, your living in obedience, your being upholding your end of the covenant. Well, that ends up being a, a pretty heavy thing to lift. Um, and the way it played out relative to justification is now, as Dr. Venema pointed out quite clearly, and Dr. Strange too, is the faith aloneness of justification starts needing to be prepackaged with works. You need the, 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 the software needs to, of faith needs to come already loaded with works righteousness to qualify as the faith that can take hold of Christ, which was also quite opposed to what the Belgic Confession talked about in Article 24, 
just to say, well, where where do these fellows uh, who advocate this deviate from some historic Reformed ideas? Well, for example, in Article 24 of the Belgian Confession, when it talks about works of faith, these works proceed from the good root of faith, and such works are good and acceptable to God since they're sanctified by his grace. Well, first of all, note that any works that are counted as works have to be sanctified, forgiven, cleansed, and found in Christ. But what's so important to understand here is that works themselves can't be good except they be found in Christ. So the faith by which you take hold of Christ can't come preloaded. You can't have a working faith of righteousness in order to obtain Christ because for your faith, for your works of faith to even be good works, you have to have Christ for that. And I think, uh, just tagging in with that wonderful uh, continental citation of a confession, Westminster Larger Catechism 73 asks the question, how does faith justify a sinner in the sight of God? How? And the answer is, faith justifies a sinner in the sight of God, not because of those other graces which do always accompany it, think repentance, or of good works that are the fruits of it. Notice here, it distinguishes accompanying graces, no, that which is its fruit. No, that's not how it does, that's not how it justifies. Nor as if the grace of faith or any act thereof were imputed to him for his justification, but only as it is an instrument by which he receiveth and applieth Christ in his righteousness. And that's just what you were saying. It's just an instrument whereby Christ becomes ours. Yeah, Belgic uh, 24 puts it this way, by faith in Christ we're justified even before we do good works. Otherwise, they could not be good any more than the fruit of a tree could be good if the tree is not good in the first place. We first have to be in Christ, united to Christ, received Christ by faith, bonded to him. Now works can come into play and even be cleansed and justified and forgiven, if you will, uh, to qualify as good. So none of this, none of this idea of the faith by which I take hold of Christ is a good works faith by which I obtain Christ. And some of our listeners may be thinking, and, and I think we can understand this, well, if the reformers got this right, and this is rightly expressed not only in the 16th century Reformation, but also in the 17th century confessions that continue from that, you think of the whole Puritan movement. If they got this right, why do we need to still talk about it today? What's the point of it? And I think what it reminds us of is every generation has to come to understand the gospel, has to rightly work through these issues because the righteousness, ultimately what we're we're reminding our listeners, the righteousness that gives us a right standing before God, that admits us into the presence of a holy and righteous God is an alien righteousness. It's not our own. And it's been observed that if we're anything naturally, we tend naturally to be Pelagians, not Augustinians. In other words, we we rely on our own works. We lean on our own righteousness. And Augustine in that whole tradition is reminding us, no, righteousness is something that comes from God. Luther came to realize that the righteousness which Christ requires, he gives freely as a gift. 
and it's received by faith alone. So we're always having to contend for this because we always want to insert our own righteousness. We always want to think, well, we've got something to do with our right standing before God. And our doctrines say, no, we don't. It's entirely Christ and our reliance upon him. Well, it seems uh, relative to uh, the federal vision, the Reformed tradition has had its struggles. Uh, I think it can be historically demonstrated in how exactly to parse out divine election and its relationship to the covenant of grace and being baptized and trying to avoid two errors at the same time. The error of underestimating the sacraments of the divine promise is just a, 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 a wish list, a crossed fingers kind of baptism. Um, it's really, it's really ritualistic nonsense. And it's only when uh, a covenant person makes profession of faith, then, oh, well, there, oh, the, the promise was good, but we could never trust in that at all. And we still have many it, who have those views. Right. And that's what I mean by the federal visions reacting to that. But the other view is to so objectify the covenant and to make, to conflate and to flatten it out in such a way, yet flatten it out in a way that there's no distinction between election and covenant. Well, then what's your conclusion? You only have two options. Well, everyone should doubt their salvation. Everyone should presume almost on their salvation. And the, well, wow, there's obviously people who uh, never come to faith or are baptized or fall away from the faith or are baptized. And then the solution is to turn the promise into something less than salvific and to turn the promise into sort of a grand proposal. It's sort of a, a free offer of the gospel covenantal style. So God says, I promise to be your God if, if, and when, when you do me the favor of believing back and serving me faithfully. So uh, none of those views have been the historic reform view, underestimating the promise, deflating the promise, or turning it into a crossed fingers promise. And uh, you might say that the reformed have always, I don't want to call it exactly a tightrope, but they've walked a fence at least between There's these two There's a tension errors. there perhaps? Well, there's certainly at least – there's error on the one side, there's error on the other side, and it's easy to fall into one of those errors. And if we're given to a mysticism, a subjectivism, an overwrought pietism, we are all in favor of piety, but a, an ism there right. where we're all inward-centered. Now, how, how can I find assurance by how righteous I am or how 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 deep I feel my sins, and now I'm looking at, still looking at myself, not looking to Christ. Or trying to smooth this all out so that there aren't tensions. That's I earlier talked about this in a podcast called The Lure of Rationalism. You get rationalism where we're going to, everything's going to be smoothed out. One writer wrote back in the day when this controversy was raging, he had an article called Covenant, Keeping It Simple. 
And his solution to what you just mentioned, this tension between election and covenant, he said, let's just don't talk about election. We know it's there somehow, (laughs) but let's only ever talk about covenant and focus on that, which, of course, ultimately, it puts it on you. As you're striving with all your being to serve Christ, you need to hear that. You need to hear the message that. Tis not that I did love him, that he loved me. He chose me. We don't want to do away with election. And yet we don't want election like some, on the other hand, would have election swallow up history and nothing has any meaning. <laughs> we have to resist these errors. Well, Dr. Venema has uh, written on how Dr. Uh, Herman Boving treated covenant election. And I think within the Reformed tradition, Boving probably sought to to strike a balance or hit the biblical notes as, as carefully as possible on this question. Perhaps Dr. Venema wants to talk of, make a comment or two about that. Well, it's true. Bavink was always a balanced. He's familiar with the tradition. He knows the debates. As you both were talking, I was thinking one of the ways this issue comes to the foreground is the denial on the part of Federal Vision proponents of any distinction between the so-called visible and invisible church. They didn't like the notion of invisible church because it invokes the biblical teaching that not all of those with whom God covenants in the sense of they're embraced under its administration in time, believers and their children, are necessarily saved, or a different way of putting it, the, the recognition that God alone knows in the sense of those whom he's elected to save. And the invisible church is a way of recognizing that there are sometimes, by way of exception, and it's not the norm, and it isn't something from which we proceed But it has to be acknowledged that not every person who belongs to the so-called visible church is necessarily savingly in union with Christ in virtue of God's having elected them unto salvation. But it illustrates there are all kinds of problems that stem from a denial of the distinction, which is all it is. It's a distinction, even in its classical expression confessionally in the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's very striking that it is of the visible church that the confession says, outside of it, there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. So this distinction by no means intends to deny the importance of the church and communion with Christ within the framework of corporately belonging to the church and being nourished by the word and receiving the sacraments. That's the ordinary way in which God brings to effect and saves his people. Uh, And we should proceed very much from the standpoint of, unless a person is openly repudiating their baptism, living in a manner that belies their profession, coming under the disciplinary uh, action of the church, that they are, to be sure, to be viewed as those who are in Christ. And they should have every uh, encouragement to be assured of their salvation and look to Christ in the way of faith, view their baptism as a real meaningful confirmation of their status. But when, when you deny the distinction and you sort of put election on the shelf 
or equate election with the covenant's administration in time. You get all of the problems that we enumerated in our first session. What about those whose faith is not faithfulness, who don't persevere, who apostatize, who don't meet the obligations of the covenant in the way of uh, growth in holiness, sanctification? Uh, Does that mean regeneration is defectible? Well, it it is. I think it was Alan who said earlier that they don't really affirm baptismal regeneration, but actually among the proponents of Federal Vision, there were any number of them that played with the idea, some version of baptismal regeneration, even an imparting of faith, which was an infantile, as one of the proponents put it, faith, uh, which is in virtue of your receiving the sacrament, you become a saved person, even a believer, though it may not be a explicit self-conscious faith. Well, now you have obviously a pretty serious problem. If a person has been savingly born again by a work of the Spirit, effected through baptism, well, you should really then be quite confident that that person is going to live accordingly, persevere, ultimately be received into the glory of God's kingdom. But at the same time, as we've been saying, such persons can depart from the faith. They can apostatize. They can lose everything, including regeneration. Well, this is why historically Reformed writers made a distinction in the covenant, and this is what many despise, but it was, I think, a best proposed biblical solution. They made a distinction between those who participate in the covenant in its saving efficacy and those who participate in the covenant only in its outward administration, which can have various benefits and blessings and positive things, but nonetheless, they're not finally bonded to Christ and the, through the Holy Spirit. It became known as the dual aspect view of the covenant. Gerhardus Voss talked about this, Louis Burkhoff. But way before both of them, even without that terminology, Reformed writers were making this sort of distinction. And the doctrinal testimony regarding recent errors that Mid-America put out likewise worked with this kind of distinction. And it's a distinction of necessity because either you have to say baptism is empty and we wait for a profession of faith, and now you're basically a sprinkling Baptist. Or you have to say, in the way of baptismal regeneration, by the very act of being baptized, God effectuates regeneration, and now you'd be counted as one elect. But since, obviously, baptized persons fall away from the faith, well, either uh, grace is resistible, ineffectual, God's not up to the task to keep saved those he saves. Hmm, that doesn't sound like a real good biblical option. Uh, Thus, perseverance of the saints. Well, saints don't uh, persevere so very well in this. Hmm, election, it sounds pretty conditional now to me because it uh, the the elect that takes for eternity is conditioned on your faithfulness hmm this doesn't sound like a very good uh, reformed solution uh the again i come back to the blood of christ that saves hmm uh this doesn't seem to keep you saved so it's ineffectual atoning work blood of christ uh, i mean all of dort tumbles with this view 
And this is why it's not a little error. It's a serious error. We don't embrace a view of baptism in which the minister sort of sighs thereafter and says, well, that didn't really mean anything. That's one error. Or the other is you're in and he says something like, good luck with that. In other words, you get to keep yourself. We brought you in. You got everything. It's front loaded. Now you got to, you got to in your own power live the Christian life. If I may add just something here, one of the proponents of the Pharaoh vision wrote an essay on one occasion where he argued that we shouldn't use the language of means of grace or even the language of instrumental to the communication of grace. We should actually call the sacraments as they're administered graces. They give, they communicate, they effect what they visibly represent. Well, that sounds really impressive, but now you've lost the Holy Spirit's use. Just as is true of the Word. Historically, Reformed people have never said that the Word spoken, absent the Spirit's opening the heart and giving receptivity and granting faith, which is our act, but it's by virtue of something the Spirit has done, who authors uh, through regeneration, that new life that registers itself in our receiving. So the the whole sacramental and understanding of means of grace, God has appointed these means. He will effectively use them to communicate Christ to us, but that effectual, effectual communication is also an action or a ministry of Christ's Spirit, which draws us to Christ and enables and effects even, authors that very faith whereby we embrace Christ. The, the work of the Holy Spirit, in other words, broadly speaking, and the appropriate emphasis and recognition that Christ is only ours when through the Spirit and the Word and the sacrament, we embrace what is being communicated. So you, you, you really lose any kind of, on the front end, understanding of the role and ministry of the Spirit with the sacrament, with the Word, and as well our appropriation by virtue of that work of the Spirit. So it's very objective, and it's very effectual. But as we've been saying all along, it at the end of the day, at the front end, what you thought you had can just as quickly be lost. So you, you've gained nothing, but you've lost a great deal in the process. And I think in that sense, it's historically regressive, not progressive. Because what you had in the Middle Ages was a development of the doctrine of the church. If you look at Aquinas's uh, theology, you see the doctrine of the church and the sacraments is very heavily developed, but not the work of the Holy Spirit. It's not until Calvin, really, who is the theologian of the Holy Spirit, that you get that. And if you eliminate that and go back to a kind of view in which the sacraments are supercharged and they do, they they give the grace, they confer the grace that they signify, then you've actually gone backwards in terms of theological progression. You've gone back to a Middle Ages view, which we've, by God's grace, progressed beyond that.
The discussion surrounding Federal Vision doesn't stop here. If you'd like to read more about Federal Vision, you can find and read for yourself the doctrinal testimony regarding recent errors on our website. We'll be sure to link it in the description for this episode. Well, embedded a little bit in this conversation, you may have heard our professor's name drop another theological controversy, one that's also addressed in the Manual of Recent Errors, that being the new perspective on Paul. Stay tuned for an eye-opening three-part series brought to you by Dr. Marcus Minninger, Reverend Andrew Compton, and Dr. Cornelis Venema. For more episodes, you can find us on our website at midamerica.edu slash podcasts and wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Be sure to search for and subscribe to Mid-America Reform Seminary's Roundtable. I'm Jared Luchibor. Till next time.